0: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode with Julia Freeland Fisher and Dr. Manaz Chirania. Julia is the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute. She's also the author of the 2018 book, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. She's joined today by Dr. Minaj Trania, a senior research fellow at the Christensen Institute and co-author with Julia of an important new paper, The Missing Metrics, Emerging Practices for Measuring Students' Relationships and Networks. They think measuring social capital might be just as important as reading and math scores. Let's listen in as they talk to Tom about how social capital needs to be taken into account when addressing equity, access, and more.
1: Hey, Julia Freeland-Fisher. Welcome back to the Getting Smart Podcast.
2: Thanks, Tom. Great to be here.
1: It's a great to have you. And you're joined by uh, Manaj Chenaria. Is that right?
3: Chirania. Thanks for having Charania.
1: me. I'm sorry. Glad to uh, have you. Um, Manaj, you grew up in, in Dallas and then you traveled uh, far to Austin for a psychology degree. Is that right?
3: That is right. That is right. I came from a family where you didn't go too far off away from your roots to, to get college access. So, you so know
1: why? I mean. I'm curious why you chose, you, you, you did your PhD closer to home though in Arlington, and why experimental social psychology?
3: Actually, no one's really asked me that before. I, I took a statistics class in undergrad where I became fascinated by the power of data and studying and influencing human behavior. And that is actually what triggered my interest in psychology. And I realized to actually be in the data space, I needed to get a higher degree. And I pursued my, my PhD in that, in that topic.
1: Um, and where did the interest in education came? Because after you graduated, you spent about six years here, there in uh, Atlanta, working both with Fulton schools and, and, and in a nonprofit. So when and how did you make the connected education?
3: So I started my career as a behavioral scientist in HIV-AIDS prevention at the CDC and at one point I was actually studying health and equities and partnering across uh, institutions and working with the Department of Ed to bring more whole child um, initiatives in place and that's what sparked my interest in education and I left CDC to then join Fulton County Schools because at that time they were looking to develop a research and evaluation portfolio.
1: Did, did you work with Helene Gale at the CDC?
3: Uh, not directly, but uh, because I was in the HIV AIDS division.
1: Okay. So Helene uh, Helene was at CDC for uh, 20 years. You were probably at CDC right after um, Helene, who at the time was running Care International. She was on our podcast um, last week. So fascinating uh, background. Um Julia, it's it's so good to have you on again. Um, we're celebrating your uh, so an extension of your 2018 book, um, Who You Know. You described in some detail in our in our last podcast the journey there. But if you could recap how you went from, you know, the important early work that that you and Michael Horn were doing around blended learning. Um, uh, how did you get from there to social capital as a as a, a an important focal point for your work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, when I joined the institute, which was literally seven years ago, just to date myself, I look as old as I look on this Zoom call. Um, when I joined the institute, we were really focused on the rise of online and blended learning, um, and it's obviously something pre. COVID-19 that um, continues to be studied, but that is now like front and center for the entire country, if not world. Um, and that was exciting to me. I had started my career at New School's Venture Fund when tech was still like a, like it wasn't even a category really, like Solcon was just like in a room making videos. Um, right. So I was excited to trace this rise of tech. But as I looked at that market, um, I, we kept seeing examples of content delivery assessment and productivity tools. And ironically, not very many communication and connection tools, even though at the same time that edtech was on the rise, sort of social media and digital communications had obviously sort of flooded our working world and our social lives. Um, and so I wanted to understand why weren't we talking about technology to connect? And on the flip side, if you think about some of the chronic challenges in education, particularly in sort of leveling the playing field and access to opportunity, um, while there's a robust and ever sort of tortured conversation about achievement gaps, if you look at the data behind opportunity gaps, we know that in fact, Mm -hmm. and that's made half of jobs come through social connections. And so if we really care about tackling opportunity gaps, yes, let's talk about skills and competencies, but let's not ignore the fact that um, networks matter too. And so it was really the confluence of the potential for technology to connect as a sort of disruptive innovation in the field, in addition to what I saw as like a missing or sort of blind spot in the um, access and equity conversation.
1: Yeah, it's super important um, insight, one that we, we continue to appreciate. Um, Manaz. I'm, I'm curious, what um, interests you about this topic? So
3: I, I joined this work because I wanted to learn more with Julia and build with her. Social capital is something I've personally experienced advantages of and disadvantages of. So I know that it's something very real and can change the trajectory of a young person and whether they not only access college, but experience the levels of social economic mobility we see so many students um, experience. And so for me, given my measurement background, because I fundamentally believe we can't really know if we're making a difference unless we're tracking it, I wanted to be part of influencing and expanding what I knew mattered about social capital. Uh,
1: Julia, we're talking um, in, in a middle of a global pandemic, um strange strange year um as you think about the 2020 epilog um to who who you know what's the what's the outline of that epilog what what would you add to the book today
2: yeah absolutely um so i'll name one thing that i i would have added like the day after the book published, uh, Tom, I think you once said to me that like, even once you've turned in the initial manuscript, you already like hate the book and want to move on yes. when you're writing not something. So, so I had a version of that experience. I think um, one, so there's three parts of the epilogue. Part one uh, is that I think I was a little bit um, naive, or there was some hubris around creating a straw man that sort of schools aren't doing this. Schools are not focused on building student social capital. And I think, although that's true, if you look at sort of a lot of vision statements and strategies and certainly the metrics, um, to Manaz's point by which we measure progress, I don't think I did enough justice to the fact that schools are, in fact, building social capital day in, day out. Um, the problem is we actually don't have any way to detect how much of that they're doing, how well they're doing it, and how equitably they're doing it. And so we're sort of, in some ways, shooting in the dark. And as much as I want to talk about all the cool innovations that I think could yeah. expand students' access to social capital, if we take this sort of technocrat assumption of like we're at baseline zero, then we might innovate in the wrong direction, and we might wipe out really promising stuff that's happening at schools already. So that, um, that's part one of the epilogue. Uh, Part two, I I think in the current climate around COVID-19 and the fact that we now all have to connect virtually um, in some form or fashion uh, in a way that was not the case before, I think I would double click on what we were very compelled by in our research, which is that technologies were not designed to um, be surrogates for caring relationships or to be platforms that could offer surrogates for caring relationships. So a big aha that we had doing the research originally in the book was technology or ed tech has a competitive advantage when it comes to diversifying our networks and reaching out to new people we might not otherwise meet. But we were in no way arguing that that all relationships should be technologically mediated, um, particularly given the importance of caring relationships for healthy youth development. So watching everything play out right now, as much as I um, think that we're going to make important strides in sort of improving our ability to form relationships online, I actually am most encouraged by the school districts and systems and post-secondary institutions that are trying to find out, figure out creative ways to still bring people together in person in small groups to forge caring relationships um, and use technology as, again, a sort of supplement to diversify and expand networks. Last part of the epilogue, I um, did not write a chapter about race. And it was a very conscious decision at the time. I had sort of a complex that this is not my area of expertise. And I felt as though I would sort of try and do a treatment of it that would not be good enough. But the fact of the matter is that our networks are deeply segregated. And that was part of the animating force behind me wanting to write this book, but I didn't take it all the way. Um, And so I think if there's one book that I um, that I am pointing to more and more, I'll hold it up since I know we're on video. This comes out of the mentoring world. It's called Critical Mentoring. It's by Tori wieston Um, The mentoring world has a lot to teach us about how to think about youth adult connections, particularly across lines of difference, including race and class. Um, and I think that uh, for this work to, not just be relevant moving forward. That sounds gross and pandering, but to be as powerful as it could be moving forward. Right. Um, we are trying to integrate race more deliberately sort of in our work uh, on this topic. Um, so those are the three, not so, I mean, it would be a totally different book. Let's just be
1: honest. Yeah. No, I totally appreciate that. Um, right. Context matters. You, you really couldn't write that book. Um, on social capital without dealing with race today. Um, and I, I, uh, f- for very similar reasons, when we wrote the uh, power of place, which came out the day that the W, uh, the WHO declared COVID a global pandemic, um, we, we had, um, in, uh, we had attempted, uh, to deal with the inequities around the way kids experience place. But, um, but, but, but like you um, now find it uh, quite inadequate. So um, I really appreciate those epilogue thoughts. I want to jump into um, this new paper that you uh, just released uh, recently where you tried to put a measurement framework, um, a really comprehensive measurement framework uh, behind this is this, Manaz, did you really develop this framework or uh, is this a collaborative? Uh, where, where did it come from? What's the backstory?
3: So as Julia and I really thought about what, what enable schools and systems to design for social capital deliberately and from an equity lens, it was really important for us to take lessons learned from the ground up. So we take a very practical measurement approach, which chance also happens to be um, an approach David Yeager of UT Austin has done a lot of work around which which articulates the value of collecting data for continuous improvement versus accountability and taking lessons learned both from research and from practice and so that's what we did in developing this four-dimensional framework we drew on practices identified across post-secondary k-12 and workforce programs and started to recognize these four clusters of areas where data was being pulled up to get a better sense of yeah. the, to which social capital was getting. Uh,
1: M- and as I really appreciate the, the, the impulse is really to come at this from a com- continuous improvement standpoint. And that's so important because that allows you to do a couple things, right? I think to use a set of proxy um, measures and to be iterative in your approach, right? To use stuff that isn't great, but it it's an early indicator, and number two, when you get a better indicator, you can swap it out. Does that sound right? Is that, you you really, you wouldn't have that luxury in an accountability system, but in a sort of a continuous improvement system, you can use cruder measures and take a more iterative approach. Is that a summary?
3: Yeah, that's 100% right, and if if I may, Tom, I want to give you a quick example. When I was at Fulton County, I was there during the time when Blended was actually released, and the, the entire country was shifting towards personalized learning.
2: Right. And there were
3: all these examples of what it looked like in implementation mode and in practice, but districts had very little tools at their disposal to understand if they were actually doing this in the right and best way. And we recognize this early on for social capital that there is a lot of early innovators doing important work. A lot of other organizations wanting to do this, but not really knowing how they would track if they're doing this equitably. So measurement, if we can integrate that while schools and systems are designing, we can accelerate the pace at which they support students. If that makes sense. So yes, iteration is a core component of what we hope schools will do as they adopt these dimensions over time.
1: All right, let's take a, a quick spin through the four measures that you talk about in the paper. Um, let, let me summarize them really quickly. Quality relationship, um, quantity relationship, structure, of networks and the ability to mobilize um those relationships um julia how do you measure the quantity of relationships that seems is that the easiest of the list
2: yeah way to give me a softball tom um, so i think i actually think this is really important um for especially our k-12 audience but it, it's also in post-secondary as well i think um quantity it's it's Describes itself but this is essentially counting the number of relationships at students disposal Um, we emphasize the importance of though not just thinking about your strongest most caring enduring relationships which is sometimes the mindset we get into when we talk about young people it's sort of inherited from the world of mentoring that you have like one or two people you really depend on Um, We know from lived experience that that's not all that a network is composed of. It also includes our, what sociologists call weak ties, our sort of mere acquaintances. And we also know that um, Mark Granovetter, a researcher from Stanford, coined the term back in the 70s, the strength of weak ties, because our weak ties can actually contain new information opportunities. So when we think about enumerating the number of connections at a student's disposal, um, we're really pushing in this report to say, like, don't short shrift yourself when you come up with that list of who a students know think sort of um, broadly about um, not just their their most caring relationships but a a broad sort of web around them Um, and and track that over time to understand are their networks hopefully in fact growing over the course of an intervention or an educational experience where you're connecting them with people Um, but where you may not know whether that relationship actually sticks, right? So a concrete example, right? These internship-based learning programs that, Tom, you've been tracking for years um, put students into work environments where they are coming into contact with a bunch of people, understanding pre and post What does a student's network look like just in terms of sheer size could be a really powerful indicator for whether programs are actually embedding those students into true communities of practice in those workplaces, or if they're hanging out in a corner, filing, answering telephones and not interacting with anyone.
1: So what is, would this include the number of LinkedIn connections that you have?
2: Yeah. So that's one of the ways that some of the programs we looked at um, are actually tracking this. So Braven, which is a program that works um, with underrepresented low-income and first-generation college students um, literally track the number of LinkedIn connections. They have a benchmark around, if I'm wrong, encouraging students to have at least 50 LinkedIn connections over the course of their program. Um, Again, with this, I I guess just to sort of step back for a second, the other other reason why this matters, right, is sort of – not over depending on a single mentoring relationship as being the one that's going to open a door to opportunity. So right. those of us who have navigated a job search know that it's in part a numbers game. So LinkedIn is one tool. Manaz, um, maybe you could briefly describe Trovit, which is a tool for um, younger students, actually, but with some similar capabilities.
3: Yeah, Trovit is great, and they do multiple things and address multiple de- dimensions. But it's a digital portfolio. For example, Compsai High School. Um, which is a charter high school um, in the Northeast, actually leverages them to one, build an awareness among their high school students on the importance of social capital and relationships, but then visibly track the professional relationships they, they come in contact with so they can actually see that grow over time and take that with them as they move on beyond the high school so that they can now cultivate those relationships on their own.
1: Uh, that's great. I wonder if InBlaze may do that as well from from uh, Big Picture.
2: Yeah, so InBlaze has um, over. – they've considered – they have a sort of integration with LinkedIn that only goes in one direction right now, okay. um, where they encourage students to have LinkedIn profiles and also solicit endorsements from their worksite um, mentors and supervisors on LinkedIn. I think the long-term dream, though, you're correct, Tom, is to sort of think more broadly about um I guess, interoperability
1: yeah. <laughs> among these tools. I So I, I love this category. It's hard to, um, it might be hard if you set a goal, you know, to have 50 or 100 uh, community LinkedIn connections for this, not to become a bit of a counting exercise. I guess some of the other categories, like the second one that we'll talk about, are sort of a counter balance. Um, Manaz, uh, how do you get at the, quality of relationships. What's that about?
3: Yeah, so quality is really what's going to drive whether these relationships last over time. And it's the extent to which that relationship is actually meeting the different needs of that student. So we can put all these relationships in front of the student, but if that person isn't actually responsive to their relational or developmental needs, that relationship probably is not going to last very long. So the question is, what kind of data can we capture from the student and or the adult that helps us ensure as schools and systems that there is a real match and satisfaction and a sense of connection between the two individuals that we're putting together. So for example, ASU Local does this really well where they actually ask students questions over time to ensure are they feeling comfortable? Are they feeling connected? Are they feeling supported? to make sure that if that's not happening, that relationship is not gonna yield the results and supports that we want for the students.
1: Yeah, I I love that uh, example. So uh, for our listeners, Arizona State has uh, started in Los Angeles uh, a network of um, these ASU local sort of little pop-up, which you might think is odd for a big online university uh, but I think they recognize the, the power of relationships, that, that having, having a personal um, advisory relationship is super important. And then encouraging uh, the, the development of these sort of networks is really important to uh, persistence and then tra- transition to employment. So that, I thought that was a neat example.
2: Yeah, can I just chime in here for with one more thing on quality that I think Manaz and I really um, appreciated. This is like in some ways the biggest bucket and the most mysterious one of like how do you measure yeah. the quality of relationships? Right, we're experiencing them constantly, and they're sort of these ever-shifting, hard to pin down right. uh, phenomena. But um, again, this is a place where education, I think, would be wise to borrow from fields like youth development and mentorship um, because. There's also a body of research around trying to measure both the developmental support that a relationship provides a young person and what's called the instrumental support. So the notion that um, someone actually gave me a resource or opened a door for me. And, and again, we don't see a lot of these in education systems right now being used necessarily, but we point in the report to, for example, our partners at the Search Institute who have the developmental relationships framework and are developing some really exciting surveys to, to gauge that. Um, and again, examples from the mentorship space on how to ask questions about the sorts of instrumental supports. Did did someone introduce you to a colleague or recommend you for a job? Like, let's actually get at that level of data um, and not stop at just sort of the warm and fuzzy feelings that we sometimes default to um, when we talk about relationships in education.
1: I appreciate that. And I, let me note that um, the end of your paper has a great appendix that has a set of examples of uh, both the sort of questions that get at a, a topic like the quality of relationships and then a, a list of um, institutional examples. So your paper really does a nice job of trying to make this as real as possible. Manaz, uh, talk about the structure of networks. How, how do you get at that?
3: Yeah, this one is really Fascinating and it's very challenging too because we can easily get locked into just the people we know and and increase the quantity within these circles um, These homogeneous circles that we have but the real value is to ensure that students know a variety of people And to recognize how those people are connected to each other so that if you can visualize it we have students accessing multiple nodes of heterogeneous groups that can then speak to their diverse needs and interests and passions and, and that means exposing students to people of different backgrounds, expertise, and insights. Uh, for example, like Compsai, um, I've given that example. I particularly like, at, like there's this one company called XSEL Labs, Julia, correct me if I'm wrong in understanding what they do, but what I like about them is they do show a huge value for social emotional learning, but they also recognize that that is only as valuable as putting actual relationships within students' reach. And so they offer students this network mapping activity through this nomination survey to ensure that students have access to diverse peer networks that they can then learn and grow from and with.
2: But to be provocative for a second here, um, XSEL's tool, it's, it's a friendship nomination survey is the sort of sociological and technical term for it, where you have students actually enumerating who they are close to in their classroom. This can be a... Uh, lightning rod issue for parents, right? Uh, because it can sound like we're running sort of like data-driven popularity contests in classrooms. So I actually think it's an area where we think, we put forth in the report that if you're not paying attention to the structure of these networks, kids could be falling through the cracks. But where to sort of move this work forward, there has to be an understanding of the why, right? It's not just to understand who students know and then not act upon that data. It's actually right. to say, now that we've seen that, let's think about, heterogeneous grouping let's think about different ways to put students on projects together to try and cross-pollinate friendship not just sort of have a popularity contest which i think is just something to keep in mind across the board of like none of those i think manaz and i are suggesting is like data collection for the sake of data collection because it could be very fraught very quickly
0: this podcast is sponsored by tel's microcollegiate academy If you're looking for another option to help your motivated high school student earn college credit while completing their high school requirements, check out Micro Collegiate Academy. With high-quality, mastery-based curriculum designed for online learning, students can earn up to two years of transferable college credit while completing high school. Check out MCAProgram.org for more information. Scholarships are available.
1: I appreciate that. So that is both... um, a teacher being aware of those issues, but it's also useful to have measurement tools, probably a set of smart tools that are tracking this that can nudge a teacher to say, this is happening in your classroom, you know, in part based on the nature of the tasks that you're constructing, um, be thoughtful in the next several rounds of, of the groups that you construct. Um, that, that's a helpful prompt. Uh, Manaz, the last category is the ability to mobilize relationships. That seems super important and also quite gnarly to measure. Mm-hmm. How do you get at that?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is extremely important. Again, putting, putting relationships within reach isn't enough. Students need to have the skill set and the mindsets to be able to activate these relationships over time when there isn't an adult overseeing them or when they're no longer in that school or, or, or college. Where someone's been facilitating for them and this is the student's ability to seek out help when they need and activate relationships based on their needs and interests. One of the things I wanted to point out actually that undergirds all of the, these, um, going back to structure a little bit too, I apologize, is this, this topic of diversity, right? Um, right? To make sure students are confident in accessing and activating relationships with people who are different from them, or maybe working in different spaces or different environments. And that's gonna take some concerted effort to make sure they're, they're practicing that while they're in our schools and post-secondary systems and then being able to take those relationships with them.
1: I'm really interested in the subject of, um, of helping young people tell their story, right? Of who they're becoming and both what they have accomplished, what they've overcome, with whom they've connected. And I'm, I, I think of, um, of a variety of ways that young people could do that. You know, traditionally, we've, we've relied on a transcript to communicate that story, which is really a crappy summary. It's a list of courses you took in the grade that you got, right? And, and so portfolios are another way um, to give examples, artifacts of products that you've produced. And sometimes there's a story of connection associated with them. Some people are thinking about extended transcripts that include new forms of evidence, both formal and informal. Um, As you think about those strategies, where does this information show up? How, in in what ways, both formal and informal, might a young person uh, leaving high school or leaving college utilize this information to tell an employer or another institution of learning um, about who they are and about their aspirations?
2: I'll take a stab at that and Manaz maybe add. Um, Well, so we mentioned Trovit and I, and I bring it up again, not to sort of endorse a single portfolio company, but because I think Tom, part of what you're getting at, there's sort of two layers of this. There's like, what's the most holistic, but digestible portrait of myself that i can show the world right. uh, which is like both a design challenge and, a, and i would argue an assessment or diagnostic challenge then there's um if we if we come at this more from the social capital lens i may have even mentioned this on our last podcast but there's the fact that elliot washer from big picture learning always reminds me of which is it's not just what you know and who you know it's who knows what you know yeah. and what i'm really excited about as people embark on measurement it's it's not just sort of showing a more uh, high-resolution portrait of students' networks, but yeah. connecting that to the academic side of the house. So what Trovit does, right, that we think is really smart, is it shows students' experiences and the mentors or adults or even peers that worked alongside them in those experiences. So you're actually, it's not dissimilar to LinkedIn, but you're connecting the what and right. the who in a structure like that. Um, I think that that, to me, is um, the sort where the magic can happen. The second thing I'd say, though, is that I may be less excited about the sort of um, transcript play and more excited about how are we arming students with ways to keep track of and mobilize their networks over time themselves. So like, as you've talked about over the years, owning their own data. Um, And the reason why that's really important that Manaz keeps alluding to is the fact that like your social capital is a reservoir of resources you carry with you throughout your life. So the more that we can arm students with like a digital Rolodex or like a backpack of connections, whatever like yeah. metaphor we use, the better we are setting them up, we are future-proofing them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the better we're setting them up for, frankly, all the uncertainty that we're facing as like a nation and a world right now. Um, I don't know, I'm curious, Tom, on your thoughts there though, if you've seen examples of portfolios that yeah. get the side right so, <laughs>
1: um uh, Manaz, in your hometown of uh, Dallas, uh, Dallas County, there's uh, a startup called Greenlight Credentials that's been working with Dallas County Promise. And that's an example of a cool digital uh, transcript, an extended transcript. And and on it, um, on what I would call the page two, the additional information, there's a, a list of, you know, five people that have been influential in your life. So that's sort yeah. of your five that that are like the core to your network. Um, I can imagine adding to that, um, you know, a link to your LinkedIn profile and the number of LinkedIn connections that you have. And you can imagine adding a couple different more proxy measures for the type and size sort of distribution, maybe the geo distribution of of your network. One reason um, I find that so attractive is that Greenlight now permissions it allows young people to permission their data to north texas learning institutions and so they can receive an inbound um, notice of acceptance just based on a, a data extract that they would pulled from that learner's profile and they can do the same thing with an employer an employer can query your data if you're if they've been permissioned and they can give you um an interview uh, or an internship, or even a, a job offer um, based on your profile. So, I like the idea of giving young people the ownership of a, a transcript where they can add this relationship data that you've been describing and then permission it to people to whom it might be of interest. So, I think that's one interesting development.
2: Yeah, and I think to take that one step further into our sort of like theory of change, not to sound jargony, I think I would also hope that we're looking at that data in aggregate at the level of the institution to understand like how much of that was inherited versus deliberately brokered, which is like um, one of the reasons why Manaz and I embarked on this measurement journey in the first place is like, yes, these are individual attributes for students, but we're but it's the institution sort of taking on the responsibility to look at this data and think about how can we better hopefully yeah. build these networks or more equitably that I think will be powerful.
1: Yeah. I, I want to go back to your earlier, what, the, the way Manaz uh, described this as really being about continuous improvement and Julia, the way you described it about owning your own data. I think the, the most valuable thing here might be is that as part of a, advisory relationship if you have an advisor that's helping a young person understand the quality the quantity of your relationships the nature of your network and your ability to mobilize them if you're having that conversation with your advisor every week through high school and college right you're it's imprinting um, that this is an important part of my personal development not just the grades that I'm getting in class but that these relationships in quantity and quality are really important to who I am becoming, that, that sort of continuous improvement, self growth, feels like the most important um, aspect of, of these metrics. Manaz, is it sound right?
3: Yeah, I, I absolutely love what you're saying. And if I could rewind back and be into high school, um, something you said really made me think, how amazing would it be if every high school student could graduate with right. advisors? who can right. then guide them. We still have students coming into college not yet knowing how to draft an email yeah. to for an opportunity because we need to carry those relationships with them over time so that they can actually achieve socioeconomic mobility and not just pass a class or, or come out with a degree. And I think it's this longer term thinking that we wanna help schools do more intentionally through measurement and capturing insightful data.
1: Uh, I love that. Um, I- I want to wrap up with this difficult challenge that uh, this all sounds great, but it seems like really even more challenging than it would have been in this uh, middle of a global pandemic. Um, How how in the world do we help kids um, build their network now?
2: So I'll say, Manaz and I just wrote a piece in the 74, um, that we well they titled it differently as you know that happens but like the gist of it is you can't have a roadmap without a relationship map so we actually okay. think that we're entering a period of time where our insti- if our institutions don't know who are stu- who their students know they will be less equipped to manage the coming year and that um for the first time that has to bridge formal and informal connections right, right. because the teacher of record alone is not going to be a sufficient support. For a k-12 student um the sort of once once a semester advisor in college is not necessarily going to ensure retention and so i think um some of the some of the in some ways more rudimentary practices like relationship mapping that we call out in this measurement brief could be really powerful tools going into the year to come so that's in terms of like the institutional level i think um i'm I am maybe somewhat encouraged, and I don't say this to sound Pollyannish, I'm not one of these like, oh, the pandemic is going to help us accelerate disruption people, even though that may or may not be happening. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that some of the organizations we've looked at, like Climb Higher, uh, which is a workforce development organization, um, uh, Career Village, which is an online career networking and advice site, Nepris, which ports industry experts into classrooms, all of them have seen an immense surge in virtual volunteerism. And and that may sound, um, again, sort of, uh, just sort of like a nice to have, but part of the premise of this work since day one has been getting outsiders involved in the project of school. Right. And I think we're entering a year where more of those outsiders could be connected virtually to students and we should take advantage of it.
1: Manaz, um, I, I guess I uh, just wondered if you wanted to close with a few words of advice I'll give you both a, a shot at this if you're um if you're a, a high school principal or a a counselor or if you're a, a college counselor um where, where to start
3: Yeah I This is a really overwhelming time for for all educators and even parents. I have two kids in elementary school and one in middle, and it's it's a whirlwind of an experience. And I know our teachers are working extremely hard, our principals are working very hard, and I imagine they're gonna spend the first few days trying to reconnect with these students.
1: Right, job job number one, right?
3: yeah and and there's simple paper and pencil tools like relationship mapping tools from making caring common project for example right. where they could just identify who is this child with at home when they're not here that we can connect with to ensure they do not get disconnected that we can communicate with and support them through this immediate need right now i think could go a very long way and then as capacity improves start recognizing where the supports are coming where the needs are for the student and building that reservoir of relationships over time. But that immediate mapping could go a long way through this year and beyond.
1: That's great. Ju- Julia, any other words of advice?
2: Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll just give a shout out to something I heard about last week, but, but that echoes some of the work we're seeing across um, groups that are really focused on building social capital. And it links back, Tom, to your idea of sort of students telling their story. And I think a lot of thinking you've done over the years on students' sort of sense of purpose. Um, mm. which which is sort of a buzzword, but who, who students are, what their identity is, and what their goals are. I was just on a webinar last week with a woman named Lydia Martinez from Springfield Public Schools, and, and they had a really cool series of summer projects that um, were sort of project-based learning, but uh, assignments where students could desc- sort of in, um, describe their identity and their goals. And it was serving two purposes. It was a set of, of summer school assignments, but they were actually gonna take those assignments give the, the work products to the teachers um, who had a batch of incoming students they had never met, and the sort of result of those projects was going to be a first cut at getting to know their students. And there's something really powerful there of, like, let's combine what we know of the sort of best of the best of purpose-driven project-based learning and use those for teachers to get to know their students on the front end. Um, and I, it, it just felt like a really elegant solution to what feels like an like Manaz said, an incredibly daunting exercise. I'd point you guys, um, listeners, to NXU, which is a group out of New York City that's actually scaling sort of purpose-driven exploration um, in addition to to Springfield Public Schools. And Tom, I'm sure you know a million others who are doing cool stuff in that area, but maybe a, a good way to kick off a weird year.
1: Do, do you, Manaz, um, do you have a sense that these emerging metrics might be just as important as your reading and math score?
3: Personally, yes, 100%. I think we have Uh, powerful metrics around accountability, and we need to add these in there, not just as inputs to academic achievement, but to uh, make sure we are setting our students up for long-term success, and that needs to start now with math, with literacy.
1: You know, I, I have that Sense that um, I, this, this stuff's hard to measure, right? But uh, your your networks, who's in them, um, feels like it at least as important as any traditional measure that we have. So I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's it's difficult and challenging both technically and politically to wade into the space, um, but I I appreciate the spirit and thoughtfulness uh, with which you guys have approached the work. So, Julia, thanks for leading this effort.
2: Co-leading with Manaz, but thank you, Tom, for having having me back um, and spotlighting this issue and it's, excited it's, to keep chatting about it.
1: Um, read who you know and check out this paper. We'll include it in the show notes. Uh, Julia Freeland Fisher, thanks for being on again, and uh, uh, thanks for introducing us to Manaz Sharani, a a terrific co-author. Thanks for your work. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. A big thanks to Julia and Manaz for joining us today. For more on Social Capital, see episodes 165, our 2018 interview with Julia on Who You Know. We have it linked here in the show notes as well as on the blog. All right. That's it for today, listeners. Be sure to hit subscribe before you go so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Thanks for tuning in for the Getting Smart Podcast. This is Jessica signing off.